Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through this chapter together uh, and we are going to open it up uh, and see what God is speaking to us uh, and what he's teaching us of this morning. Uh, when I was a kid, my Alma used to look after myself and my brother and sister on a fairly regular basis uh, and she would take us for outings. Um, so because of Alma, we saw most of northern Tasmania and all the activities therein. Uh, but one of her favourites was taking us to the maze, or to one of the mazes, there's a few. Uh, never really occurred to me at the time. Now as a parent, it makes a lot of sense, a great place to you know, put your kids in. Uh, they're safe, they're secure, they're contained. Uh, and they're quiet for a couple of hours. It's great. Genius. Anyway, if you've ever been to the maze, particularly uh, from memory the one in Westbury, you'll know that in the middle of that maze there is a tower. You've been going through the maze for, for some time, you're about half of the way through, and all of a sudden you come upon this wooden tower, this platform, and you go up it, and all of a sudden you can see the whole maze, finally. You can see your brother and sister way off in the distance, hopelessly lost, You can see how big the maze is, how lost you were at times, but you can also start to plot a way out. You can see that there is an exit and you can actually make your way to it. Well, Genesis 3 is a bit like that tower. Day by day we are slogging our way through this maze, we are bumping into dead ends and trials of disillusionment and disappointment and hurt and hardship We bump into illness and relationship breakdown, our physical limitations, our addictions, our anger, our selfishness, injustices. We could continue, couldn't we? But Genesis 3 lets us step out above that in a sense and look at the the world as a whole and look at this situation as a whole. It gives us a wide view of this maze and it shows us, (laughs) it shows us actually this maze is a lot worse than we ever thought. This maze is far deeper and far darker. Uh, it's far, far bigger and far broader than we'd ever feared. In fact, this maze is so big that many people never find their way out. But what it also shows us is that there is a way out. There is a way through this maze and it's a way that we can know. And so as we open up this chapter this morning, what we're going to see is that sin's stain is deep and it's wide. But God's grace is greater still. That's what we're going to see together this morning. Genesis 3 really shows us our world in quite stark, uh, quite confronting pictures. It shows us a world that is broken badly uh, and deeply. And why? Well, because of sin. This personal rejection, this personal offence against a good God. How did that come to be? Well, verse 1 shows us by introducing this new and sinister character into the story. Look at verse 1 again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this snake, a real snake, uh, but an agent of evil, is all of a sudden appears on the scene and, and he's introducing this, this dissonant note into the story, isn't he? Uh, He is a real snake, he is a real agent of evil, but he's clearly not an equal power to God. Uh, You might have noted there, uh, he's part of the wild animals that the Lord God has made. 
It's not like God's opposite is here. No, this is one of God's created animals, uh, something that is under him and subject to him. Subject, but opposed, because his first words cast doubt onto what God had said. Did God really say that? Did he, did he actually say that? Are you sure of what God said to you? See, Eva's being thrown into a very unusual position here, isn't she? Previously, all she'd had to do is hear God's words and do them or take them at face value. Now she's being asked to judge God's words and to sit over them. And she bites. Look at verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. I don't know if the idea of a talking snake surprised Eve. Uh, we, we don't get that. Um, I guess she hadn't seen all of creation. Maybe that was quite plausible. Regardless of how she reacted, she engages with the snake and she engages with what it's saying and she joins it in its error. I don't know if you have your Bibles in front of you. You can compare what Eve said in chapter 3 to what God said in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It's, it's a striking comparison Eve uh, forgets the freedom that they've been given. Uh, God says, you are free to eat any tree. She forgets that word. She, she misses the generosity from any tree. She uh, focuses instead on the limit, not that tree. She exaggerates God's instruction. God said, don't eat. She says, God said, don't touch. Uh, she lightens the penalty as well. God says, you will surely die. She says, you will die. See, Straight away, Eve is, is misrecalling God's words. She's misrepresenting what she's been told. And now the snake gets even bolder. Look at verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the snake comes out with the outright lie. But it's mixed with truth. You won't die. Well, that's clearly a lie. That's against what God said. And your eyes will be opened. Well, there's truth there, isn't there? And we see that later in the story. The snake is saying to you, you want to grow, you want to be better, you want to keep on improving, then you need this fruit. It's worth the risk. Take it and try it. Now, we ask ourselves, well, what was that tree about? Why, why was there this tree? What does it mean, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, one commentator said we ought to be careful of idle speculation. That was, in fact, Eve's issue. And I think we can take warning in that. But what is clear is that this tree was offering something that was good. It's offering knowledge. It's offering discernment. It's offering wisdom, things that are necessary to life, to live well, in fact, to live better. Those are good things. They're not bad in themselves. Now, what the tree is representing here is the wrong way to get them. The tree is representing a way that they can be gained in human ability, by human reaching, rather than through God alone. See, the mistake is not in the things, it's in the way of getting them. It's not in what Eve wanted, but how she would take hold of it. See, all of things, these things could have been hers. All she had to do was ask God and receive from him good knowledge in the proper way. But what she's doing here is by, by looking at this fruit is seeing a way to sidestep God, 
to, to grasp these things, to take hold of them by her own power. And in doing that, usurp his place as teacher and leader of humanity. And having seen all of that, the narrative all of a sudden races through. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All of a sudden, bang, 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 and it's happened, hasn't it? She saw, she took, she ate, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate as well. I mean, now, of course, we get a huge surprise. Adam's just there. <laughs> He's just kind of standing around, listening, and now eating. Uh, Eve was deceived. We get the implication Adam took by free choice. But regardless, both of them failed. Both of them failed to trust God to provide for them. Both of them took for themselves what they were forbidden and the result was disaster. Uh, If you've ever read through uh, the Narnia Chronicles, not just The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe but the preceding ones as well, you'll know that uh, C.S. Lewis in The Magician's Nephew poses a very similar scene to this one. Uh, Aslan sends the hero of the story there, Diggory, (laughs) <laughs> great name that's fallen out of use, Diggory, uh, to go and collect fruit for Aslan. He's got to go and journey a long way to collect a piece of fruit from a special tree. And on the way, Diggory finds that this fruit can cure his terminally ill mother who's back at home in the real world. But here's the catch. He can only take one piece of fruit from this tree. So what does he do? <laughs> here's an opportunity to make his sick mum well. But Aslan's Ted, take it for me. What does he do? Does he take the opportunity to make his mum well? Does he trust Aslan to do good and give him the fruit? And the decision is agony for him, physical agony. And in the end, he chooses rightly. And though it costs him dearly, he gives that fruit to Aslan who plants it and magically a tree springs up overnight. And from it, Aslan gives him a piece of fruit and he takes it and his mother is well. And what Lewis is showing us is that trusting God always works out. God is good. Trusting in him, God, Aslan is the God figure in this story, trusting in him and not in our own hands is always the right way. And so it wouldn't have been for Adam and Eve here in this story. It would have been the right way to ignore the serpent and never take that tree. It would have worked out well, but it didn't because they failed to have that trust in God and as a result they fell. And now when God comes to them, they cannot even face him. I'm just going to read uh, God's encounter with them from 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me 
and I ate. See, God comes to them incredibly gracious. It's not like God doesn't know what's happened here. He's well aware of what they've done. He has literally given them one rule and they've broken it. The implication being it hasn't even taken them very long to do that. But rather than coming immediately in judgment, God comes and questions graciously. He he, he opens them up and they blame one another. They know when they look at God's face, when they, they, they behold him, they know they have sinned in a grievous way. This is a terrible thing that they have done. They have doubted his goodness, that he would always do what's right by them, even if they don't understand it. They've doubted his generosity. Remember the place they live, a place of good fruit, of trees and gold and gem. And yet they've doubted that generosity. And they've doubted his glory. They've doubted that God and his way and his rule are best. And they've taken his place on themselves. See, we cannot miss what is being described here. This sin is not just something wrong that they have done. It is a personal attack, a personal affront to God. (laughs) It is saying something profound about what they think of him. Uh, I guess it's a bit like when something in our house breaks. Um, It doesn't happen too often, thankfully. But when it does, Melinda doesn't tell me or call me. (laughs) She calls a professional. (laughs) And what's she saying in that? Implicitly, she's saying to me, I don't think you can do it. She's entirely right. I can't. (laughs) But that's what she's communicating, isn't she? And see, that's what Adam and Eve are communicating to God here in this story. I don't think you can do it. I don't think you're good enough. I don't think you're powerful enough. I don't think you're generous enough. And so I'm going to take it into my own hands. See, this is a personal attack against God, isn't it? God is perfectly good, perfectly generous, perfectly glorious and this sin denies all of that and says we can do better. Not only does it doubt who God is, but it denies him as the way through life. We can do better. Sin at its core is a mistrust and a rejection and a denial of all that God is. That is what sin is about. And Romans 5.12 tells us that this is our sin as well. We read there, Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. See, Paul's saying there, all of us sinned in Adam. He was our representative, he was our head, uh, and in him, we all sinned. We all participated in that rejection of God. We were with him, spitting in God's face, saying, you are not good enough. We will take it into our own hands. See, we must not minimise, we must not try and reduce just how grievous and terrible sin is. It is not just a mistake, it's not just breaking a rule, it's not just our nature, it's not just an accident. Sin is an insult, a personal attack on a loving and generous God. when King David uh, committed adultery with another man's wife and then arranged to have him killed in order to take his wife, uh, afterwards he he realised the gravity of what he's done and he wrote a psalm of of confession 
uh, Psalm 51 and in it he says this to God. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, David's not trying to pretend there that what he did didn't hurt other people or affect other people. No, what he's saying is that the most grievous, the most fundamental problem with my sin is what it did to you, God. (laughs) Is that it was against you above all. All sin can be traced back there to a personal attack, a personal doubting of God. When you unjustly yell at your kids, in effect you're saying, God's not in control. I have to be. I'll take things into my own hand. You're doubting his glorious power. When you cheat on your tax or when you steal time from your boss at work, you're saying, God's not my good provider. I'm going to take things into my own hands. He's not generous enough. I'll sort my needs. When you look at porn, you're saying, God is not good. He won't do what's right for me, so I'll seek my own pleasure. Even when you speed on the road, you're saying, God is not my Lord. I can do what's right. I can define what's right. And we could go on, couldn't we? See, at the end of the day, there is no sin that is victimless. No no sin has no effect on another. Because all sin at the end of the day is a personal attack on God. It is doubting how good and glorious and generous he is. See, the offence of sin is what it says about God. It's no wonder then that sin fractured our relationship with him. It shouldn't come as any surprise. What might come as more of a surprise is that sin affected then the whole of the world. And as we we continue through the story, we see that in the curses and punishments that God gives for sin. First to the snake, verse 14 and 15. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel Probably the snake always lived on its belly. Uh, It's just now that that status gives it, uh, it, that's given special significance, special symbolism. It's humiliation. You are forever going to be lower than every other animal. You are going to eat the dust as you deserve and you are going to be in conflict forever. The snake will never be at peace. Evil will never be at peace. There will be war for you. You will never rest. And to Eve, verse 16, To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. All of a sudden her God-given mission to uh, be fruitful, to to have children, to fill the world, that is going to hurt. It's been marred by sin. Now it's going to be painful and difficult as opposed to fulfilling and good only. What's more, her deepest relationship given by God, marriage, that too is spoiled. Now there's conflict there. Husband and wife are going to strive with each other rather than together. They're going to try and exert themselves over one another. There's going to be hardship there. And to Adam, verse 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam's God-given mission to work and order and care for the earth is too ruined here by sin. Now it is going to be painful, it is going to be hard, it is going to hurt. He is going to have to work hard just to get by, not only to enjoy uh, abundance. He's going to be at war with the land. He doesn't just get to care and shape it, he has to, has to fight and battle against it as it hurts him back. And ultimately his work's going to be futile. He's never going to see it through and one day he is going to return to the very dust that he spent his life working. The ultimate in futility. See, what, what God is saying here is that every good thing that we've seen over the past weeks in Genesis 1 and 2 is now ruined. The whole of the world has been broken by this sin. Just as the, the, the ripples from a stone thrown into a pond spread gradually throughout, so too here the, the ripples of sin touch every corner of creation. <laughs> Except it's more than just ripples. It's a tsunami that brings devastation and changes the face of the earth. Mankind fell and the entire world followed. I guess it's a a bit like a large business, isn't it? You know, in a large business, if you have one bad employee, that's not a great thing, but it's not going to be a disaster. Uh, If you walk into the, the, the offices of a multinational corporation and the receptionist is rude and ineffective, you're going to be disappointed, but it's not going to disrail the company, is it? But if you meet with the CEO of that company and he's bad, he's a crook, he's a sleaze, he's dishonest, you're not going to work with him, are you? (laughs) And in fact, you're not going to see much future for that company in general. That company's headed for bad times. And so too is creation here. Because God has made man boss of the world under him. God has given man dominion over the world to rule it in God's name. And so what happens to us affects the whole of the world. When we sin, when we fall, it trickles down to the rest of the world. The whole of the world follows. That helps us to understand why our world is as it is. So the answer for the issues around us is sin. It's our sin. That is what has ruined this world. The brokenness, the hurt, the pain that we see around us, that's not what was intended to be there. God didn't make it. Uh, It wasn't part of his plan originally. It's the result of sin. It all comes from sin. Now that doesn't give us a license though to when something bad happens, say to a person, well, it's clearly because of your sin. You know, if someone gets cancer, we can't say, well, obviously you sinned in such and such a way. We're not given that permission here. Uh, In fact, we can't do it because not even Jesus did that. (laughs) Uh, when during his time a, a tower in Jerusalem fell and killed 18 people, uh, the, the Jews came to him and said, well, they must have been terrible, hey. And he said, well, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. See, they, they, they weren't so guilty that they deserved that. That's just part of living in a sin-ruined world. Sometimes sin creates hurts that are obvious. Sometimes there's definite cause and effect. But other times there's just not. We can say hurts exist because of sin but we need to be very careful about saying you're hurting in that way because of that sin. We we simply don't have a licence for that. 
What we can say to people who are hurting is, things aren't meant to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Uh, in many other worldviews and religions, this is just how the world has always been. Uh, it's, it, it, it has been this way, it will always be this way. But the Bible says no. It wasn't supposed to be like this. The world has been ruined. And not just parts of the world, but every part of the world. Sin's, sin's uh, disturbance has spread to every single corner so that even every good thing comes with something bad. We, we, we make advances in nuclear med- uh, research and we get great advances in medicine, in energy production. But alongside we get the atom bomb and the threat of nuclear war. Microbiology gives us antibiotics, uh, great uh, protection in, in medicine, in surgery, but it also gives us resistant bugs and weaponised disease. The internet brings us information, it brings us connection to one another, and yet it's filled with porn and with abuse and all sorts of terrible things. See, every part of creation is tainted by sin. Not a single thing has escaped. From the global to the local, from hurricanes and droughts to domestic violence and substance abuse, everything is touched by sin and it is all because man fell and creation with him. What we see around us is the groanings of a world that is not meant to be this way. It has been ruined by sin. It's why things don't work as they should. It's why our bodies break down and our relationships break up. It's why there is injustice all around us, why things are just not fair and not right. The answer is sin. At the bottom of it all, it is sin. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, It's not a pretty place to look. But it's not the final word in this chapter. Even though the tower that is Genesis 3 has shown us that the maze of sin is deep and it is broad, it is terrible and dark, there is still a thread of hope that runs through this chapter. Against all the odds, (laughs) in the most unlikely of places, there is grace shining through here. Adam clearly hears it because he renames his wife. Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living... Chapter 2, he'd called her woman, not the most original of names we might say, but that will do. Now he calls her Eve because he sees there is a promise here. He sees there is something. She's called life, the mother of all who will live. Life will continue. There is hope. We see God provides graciously. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Uh, Humanity had, had, had covered ourselves in the laughably inadequate fig leaves Google a fig leaf. It is not what you would want to cover your modesty. Not effective. But now God replaces it. He gives skins to provide good garments, good clothing, what they need. And God prevents them. Look at verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It seems severe, and it is. It is 
truly severe, but it's also good. See, imagine had Adam sinned and then taken from the tree of life and lived forever in sin, being more and more tainted as life goes on. That, I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? That is a living hell. He'd become this spiritual golem, living forever, being more and more twisted and tainted. And so God prevents that. He cuts Adam off from that opportunity. Now man is like God now. What the serpent said was right. He knows good and evil. But there's a difference between the way God knows that and the way man knows that. God knows it like a doctor. Man knows it like a patient. We're experiencing it. We're tainted and touched by it. And so God promises a cure. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is hope coming. Not today. Maybe not even soon. But one day there is hope coming. There will be a descendant. There will be an offspring of Eve and he will be the snake crusher. Even though he is wounded by that snake, he will crush its head He will destroy it forever. There is hope captured in this promise, just a glimpse of a promise from God, of a day when everything will not be like this anymore. Now it takes hundreds of pages, it takes thousands of years before we see that promise fleshed out, before finally we see that promise filled and realised. And we get finally to Luke's Gospel. And what does Luke do? Luke traces from Adam through dozens of names, one by one, a genealogy that ends with Jesus. A descendant of Adam is born. A descendant from Eve is here. And just after Luke's established that, the very next chapter, what happens? Well, that descendant gets confronted by the serpent again, doesn't he? Not in in a garden of plenty this time, but in a desert of great need. Satan appears to him and he tempts him to doubt again. Three temptations. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt God's provision. Doubt God's glory. But what happens this time? Jesus passes. He doesn't doubt God. He trusts God. And he continues through. And though we fast forward a bit further, we see him again before a judge but this time acquitted innocent and yet still dies under the curse of death. And in that something marvellous is achieved. Uh, We read from Romans 5 before that fact that we all share together in Adam's sin but the chapter goes on because another one man appears, a second Adam and what the first Adam did wrong, the second Adam did right. And just as we shared in the first we get to share in the second as well. Here's what Romans 5.17 says. For if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, Jesus is the better Adam. He is the second Adam. We died in the first, we died in his sin, But now we get to live in the second. 
in his righteousness, in his resurrection, in the life he lives even now. Because in him the curse was broken. In him it was taken completely. The snake's head and his power was crushed and where death came first in Genesis 3. Now life is given. Now life is here. It's, it's like that, that wonderful climax, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, you've all seen it with your kids and grandkids. The Disney version, of course. Uh, that, that, the 11th moment, the, the final minute, love comes and the curse is broken. The, the curse is ended in that sacrifice of love and not only does the curse disappear, but all its effects go as well. It starts with the beast and he's transformed and he's restored, but then it goes from him and it flows throughout the whole of his domain and all affected by that curse are restored. They're, they're made new, they live again, free as they should have been. So too here. Jesus is the greater power. He is the promise fulfilled, the curse broken, the head crushed and restoration given. First for mankind and then spreading out through all of our dominion, the entire world. Judgment is taken. The tempter and his power are defeated. Sin is forgiven and death is destroyed. The promise is fulfilled. And life and freedom can be ours. Free both from sin's power and from sin's consequence. It is gone. And all you have to do to receive that is believe in him. Because when you trust him, you are counted part of him. And all that is true for him is true for you as well. You are part of Jesus. No longer under Adam and under the curse, but under Jesus and under that promise. For you, all that is wrong is and will be made right. For you, you'll pass from death to life from conflict to harmony, from enmity with God to family and from exile to eternity. So Genesis 3 helps us see our world better. It is true, it is darker, it is worse than we ever would have imagined. Our world is in conflict, it is in rejection of God and our sin is greater than we'd ever thought. But we are more loved than we'd ever dared hope because God has fulfilled his promise. The way out of this maze of sin and death is here. Jesus has opened it for us and things will not be like this forever. One day all the death and darkness will be gone. One day we will step out into the light. One day we will be free of the hurts and pains forever. And all God's goodness, all God's generosity, all his glory we will see better than ever before and we will live in it forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at what your Bible teaches us about sin, about our sin, we confess that too often we minimise it, we treat it as if it was something light and small when it is so clearly not. So forgive us, we pray. We praise you that even as we look at the origins of sin here in Genesis, we see in the midst of this darkness and despair that you have given hope and a promise. 
And even as sin goes from here throughout the world, even as it gets worse, we see that you hold your promise and you fulfil your promise. For you have given Jesus, who crushed the snake's head, who took the curse and broke it, so that we could live again. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you that because of him, not only do we not have to live any longer under the fear of punishment and death, but that now we can live in hope, knowing that we are united with you, reconciled to you, knowing that we look forward to the day when all things are restored and we live in eternity with you and in your presence. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.